Today's scripture reading comes from Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you have spoken, that you continue to speak, that your word does not return void, but accomplishes its purpose wherever it is spoken. God, we hold fast to the promise that your spirit uniquely works through your word to penetrate our thick and hard hearts to consistently mold us more into the image of Jesus, your son, making us not only know the world as you know it, see the world as you see it, but love what you love. May we today hear from you, spirit guide us, all for the glory of Jesus and the building up of your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Earlier this year in January, um, maybe you heard about this, there were a few individuals, about three, at a courthouse in Wichita, Kansas, who were sentenced to a collective number of 81 years in prison. They were part of a radical militia group that were set apart, set apart to pursue a mass murder of Muslims here on the United States soil. The FBI found a stockpile of weapons, homemade explosives, and phone recordings where they were talking about detonating car bombs, as well as dipping arrows in pig's blood as they shot Muslims. In their four-page manifesto, they detailed out why they desired to do this, and it was, according to them, to maintain the integrity of the Constitution and to keep more Muslims from coming into this nation. Now listen, we find ourselves in a context where we're used to hearing anymore about radical beliefs. We live in a post-9-11 world where we have bombings at the Boston Marathon. We have white nationalists driving through protesters. We have mass shootings upon mass shootings. And even as a culture, we understand that there are beliefs, there are ideas, there are these beliefs that we deeply hold, that certain people deeply hold, that are extraordinarily dangerous to us as a society, that we feel called to unearth and to reveal as insane. But in the midst of these quote-unquote radical beliefs, what do we do with all the other ones? Really, what feels like the majority of what you and I believe and what others believe, these beliefs that frankly feel 
harmless. Like, for example, maybe some of you have heard of this. There's a growing population of individuals who still believe that the world is flat. I kid you not, like, seriously, there's this growing conspiracy theory. There's a whole documentary on Netflix about it. If you have some really just tons of extra time, watch it. If not, it's not worth anything. But here's the deal. When I hear about that belief, I think, oh, that's harmless, ridiculous, but harmless. And ooh, I wonder if globes are on sale at Hobby Lobby. Like all these different <laughs> things that come together in my mind. But instantly I think, okay, those, those feel like harmless beliefs. And so in between these like ridiculous, harmless beliefs and these radical, really dangerous beliefs, well, for you and I, as, a follower, as followers of Jesus, what's essential to be a follower of Jesus? What beliefs are absolutely crucial when it comes to following Jesus? Is, is really all that's essential is to believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, period? And maybe we'll go to the book of Romans and lift a particular passage that says, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So therefore, nothing else really matters about our belief structure. As long as we believe that there was, quote-unquote, a Jesus who did that and we're loving and kind to one another, that's all that matters. That kind of question, which beliefs matter, is not a new question. It's a question that Christians have been asking since the time of Jesus. And that's why I love our passage this morning, because we find actually a pretty radical Jesus this morning. We find a Jesus who is not the laid back, everybody gets a gold star kind of Jesus. Instead, what do we see right out the gate but a Jesus with a sharp two-edged sword as a tongue ready to declare war? But let me take a step back. Good morning. My name is Gabe. Uh, I am one of the pastors here. And some of you are like, what did I step into? Um, if you're new or you haven't been around for a while, we are walking through the first three chapters of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Where on one Sunday, the resurrected Jesus appeared to the apostle John, and he had seven messages for seven historical churches in the first century across Asia Minor. In these seven messages, you find words of equipping, as well as evaluating these churches as to whether or not they're genuinely following him. And then also words of encouragement to keep on going, to keep fighting the good fight until he returns. Because he will return. And so, as we see these words written to a particular church in a particular time, we are to also hear these words for all churches across time. So for you and for me, as we seek to understand how we too can be a church for the end of the world. So now, as we step into this third letter written to the church in Pergamum, we find Jesus shakes things up a little bit, all right? He comes in and he... He actually challenges. The reason he shakes things up is because of some fairly ordinary, everyday beliefs. What we would maybe even go so far in some context to say is harmless. But not Jesus. He wakes us up to see something pretty radical. And he takes this very, very serious. And if there's one thing you want to hang your hat on, one big idea in which we're going to unpack this morning, it's this. If you don't want war with Jesus... We must, we must surrender every false belief. If we don't want to be on the wrong side of history, if we want to stand next to Jesus rather than find ourselves pitted against Jesus, if we don't want war with Jesus, we must surrender every false belief. And when Jesus 
When he's speaking to this little church in Pergamum, he has words of insight for you and I. And so as we unpack this passage this morning, we're going to see why Jesus makes such a big deal about ordinary beliefs, and then secondarily, how we actually go about surrendering these false beliefs. Okay? So let's look together. If you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 to the passage which was just read for us brilliantly by Sarah. And we're going to look here at verse 13 of chapter 2, found on page number 1029 of our community Bibles. So Jesus, he's got this sharp two-edged sword of a tongue coming out, and this is what he says, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Jesus, right out the gate, he comes with words of affirmation to this church who's holding fast to Jesus, such that even people like Antipas, who will surrender at nothing, because he will hold on to say Jesus is Lord exclusively, even at the cost of his life. Here's the deal with Pergamum, this city. Historians highlight how Pergamum was basically the epitome of Hellenistic culture and religion as revealed in its pursuits and especially in its architecture. Pergamum is known for these monstrous structures, these temples to these false gods and goddesses like Zeus and Athena. Even after Augustus, the first Roman emperor of the Roman Empire, was crowned, it was here in Pergamum where they were entrusted the first imperial cultic center where they worshipped the Roman emperor as God. And so here we find that Pergamum is a spiritual war zone where the people of Jesus and the forces of Satan, the evil one, the one who's in opposition to God's purposes, are right at a front line in the midst of intense battle. So what does Jesus say next? Look with me here now at verses 14 through 16. But I have a few things against you. Really important to note, Jesus doesn't just come word with words of affirmation. He challenges people and cultures in every generation, across cultures, across people. There's no one in which Jesus does not come with a loving word of critique and challenge. Right here. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Woo! Okay, so here's the deal. So Jesus comes with words of affirmation about these folks who have been these followers of Jesus who are holding on to Jesus' name. But they're also holding on to something else. They're holding on to the teaching of this group called the Nicolaitans. Now, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 6, you see that Jesus says, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Like, Jesus gets real serious about this. And he actually affirms the church in Ephesus because they too hate it. Jesus hates what's happening there in the church because of what these Nicolaitans are teaching. And Jesus says, you cannot tolerate them any longer or I'm going to come at war against them. 
okay, so what in the world are the Nicolaitans teaching, right? Like, what is the big stink going on here in this church in Pergamum? It really revolves around two big ideas that are central to the doctrine, this systematic way of thinking, these theology, these beliefs of the Nicolaitans. And here they are. And both of them have a tenor about them of saying, it doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter. This laissez-faire approach. Okay, so here they are. The first one is, the first central belief to the teaching of the Nicolaitans is it doesn't matter whether you engage in these idolatrous rituals like these festivities around these false gods there in your town. You see, in these trade guilds, they would have these massive feasts and they would eat in these different occupations and they would worship their specific gods. And when you would partake in these festivals, it was a way of communicating your allegiance to this god. And the Nicolaitans are saying, listen, 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 listen. Just know what you need to know about Jesus. You can mark and tick off that Jesus was and is Lord, but you can still engage in these festivities. You can still be just as enmeshed in the cultural idolatry that's there in Pergamum. It's no big deal. First thing. Second thing they said, okay, that's core to the Nicolaitans' teaching, and stick with me, this is really important, is they say, hey, it doesn't matter who you have sex with outside of marriage. It doesn't matter. The framework in which you leverage your body for your pleasure and whether they're engaged with these festivals or not. It doesn't matter. Just know who Jesus is and know him deep in your heart. But let your body do what your body needs to do. And you can go about being a normal Pergamum citizen just as long as you know in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus hates this kind of compartmentalization, the separation from, of belief from behavior. And he will not, he will not stand idly by as this teaching continues to be permeated throughout the church. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, but the Apostle Paul, I think I kind of remember something about like meat sacrificed to idols. Doesn't the Apostle Paul said, let your conscience be your guide? Doesn't he say something like that? I want you to write down two passages. This is really important to understand how our Bibles fit together. Write 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, you might be walking through the marketplace and there's some meat on sale. It's about to expire, right? Ooh, sale. Um, and, or you might go to someone's house and they're serving you meat. You don't have to ask questions on where it came from. You can just eat. Let your conscience be your guide. Some of you might not be able to do that, but others of you can, and that's okay. But in 1 Corinthians 10, what the Apostle Paul clearly condemns and never condones is the engagement of those festivals where the meat is being sacrificed and lifted up in worship to those false deities. So very much so, the Apostle Paul is perfectly in line with this particular testimony of what Jesus is telling this church in Pergamum. And really, this isn't just happening in Pergamum. This is happening all over the first century church. You see, the Apostle Paul, when he was called to be a missionary to the Gentiles by the Spirit of God and by Jesus himself, he goes to the Jewish leaders over the church in Acts chapter 15. We're putting our Bibles together. And they say what? There are two things. Acts 15, verses 20 and 29. You can write that down. And go read that context later as well. And they say, listen, listen. Paul, when you're going to reach out to the Gentiles, they don't have to follow all of Torah. Okay? They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to do... But listen. 
whether you're Jewish or you're Gentile, in this pagan culture, no matter what pagan culture you find yourself in, there are two things that are absolutely essential. Don't engage in the religious festivities to these false gods and abstain from sexual immorality. Exactly what Jesus is saying, the Nicolaitans are saying, no big deal. So not only are the Nicolaitans going against scripture and going against Jesus, they're going against the historical stance of the church and Jesus says, I hate this. This is destroying my church. And the longer you hold on to this, I'm going to come at you with a sword. And Jesus isn't just frustrated because this was an issue in the first century church. The reason Jesus is so adamantly opposed to the teaching of the Nicolaitans is because this has been centrally a major stumbling block of the people of God in every generation. This is why he compares the teaching of the Nicolaitans to the teaching of Balaam. See, Balaam was a prophet of sorts. In the early days of Israel, as the nation of Israel is making their way into the promised land, King Balak, as we see here in the text, was over the Midianites in the land of Moab. And he calls Balaam and he says, hey, Balaam, I want you to prophesy a curse upon God's people. And Balaam's like, hey, I, I can't do that. I can only say what God says is going to happen. And all that God's saying is, is these people are going to be great. <laughs> like, there's nothing I can say. You're going to be mad at me because if I say, hey, they're going to be cursed, they're not going to be. And then you're going to come for my head. So here's the deal. God's blessing these people. And he kind of says over and over and over again until Balak is just frustrated and says, Balaam, get out of here. Balaam kind of seems like a good guy. And this is recorded in Numbers chapter 21 through chapter 31. If you want to go and engage your scriptures later. And it's not until Numbers 31 where we realize how Balaam has twisted things. See, he won't curse God's people because he knows it won't happen. But what he does is he pulls Balak aside. Numbers chapter 31 and he says, hey, I can't curse him. But what you can do is you can send in your daughters, they can engage in immoral behavior, and then you can pull them over into the worship of Baal. And then their God will turn against them. And that's exactly what happens. They engage in immorality, they worship the God of Baal, and God in his holiness sends a plague across Israel. And everyone who's engaged in this immorality begins to experience extraordinarily, extraordinary turmoil, and God says there's only one remedy, and it's death. I mean, this is an intense story that Jesus is connecting with this false teaching of the Nicolaitans. And he says, okay, I want you to go. And there's this guy, Phineas. He's like the temple guard. He actually like throws this. I mean, it's like intense. If you want to just like be shook up a little bit and woke up, go back to that passage. It is super intense. And what you find is that the nation of Moab experiences the sword. Balaam dies by the sword. Interestingly enough, the sword is a consistent theme in our passage today. And the people of Israel who engaged in immorality and idolatry also die by the sword or experience extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary judgment. All this intense judgment, all this pain, all this severity of Jesus' language here because of false beliefs. So why, why is Jesus so intense when it comes to our beliefs? Here's why. Belief is where the war for the world is waged. And Jesus is ready to do battle, folks. And I mean, 
Beliefs aren't ideas. Here's what I mean. Ideas are something you can contemplate. Beliefs is what you hold true, real, and beautiful about the world that drives the way you act. Another way to talk about that is ideas you can dissect, beliefs automatically direct. And i got to be straight up with you, this... This passage, I wrestled with this a lot. This was one of those, I was writing it late in the game because I was really wrestling with this text. As a 21st century white westerner, I've got certain assumptions about life and this was chafing against them. Because Jesus is like really intense about beliefs and teaching. And when it feels that intense and it feels that difficult to comprehend or to understand or to resonate with text, it usually shows a great stronghold in the culture in which you find yourself. So why are false beliefs so dangerous? If Jesus says this is, the, this is where the war for the world is waged, why are false beliefs so dangerous? And I want to give you three quick reasons, okay? Three quick reasons false beliefs are so dangerous. And the first is this, false beliefs infect through the heart. Satan is called the father of lies. And he never comes at us head on. And that pun is intended, okay? He comes at us first through tempting our heart, drawing out our desires, seducing us. This is the way he worked as the serpent, being extraordinarily crafty. He wins over our hearts and then finally gets our minds to come to agreement. Post hoc justification is extraordinarily strong in the ploys of the evil one. And when we look at the Nicolaitans here, they followed the same path. You see, first there's this cultural pressure or there's personal pressure. And then there's this promised relief. If you just go down this way, it's going to feel a little bit better. And then there's the followed up encouragement of compassion. Look at how this works for the Nicolaitans, okay? You've got Antipas who's just killed because he's not engaging in the festivals and he's not engaging in sexual immorality. He's set apart from the rest of the culture and they say, you're not worshiping Caesar. You're not engaging in our gods. It's going to cost you your life. So what do the Nicolaitans say? Hey, you know what? Jesus loves you. He loves you so much he died for you. He hasn't called you to this difficult life. This is really heavy. This is hard. Jesus knows what's going on in your heart. So why don't you just do what you need to do? Go on and engage in those festivals. Jesus knows your heart. Go ahead and do what you want with your body. Jesus knows your heart. In the end, his grace is abundant. It's going to be okay. And this false compassion, this misplaced compassion, leads to the misplacement of truth. Satan infects through the heart. And it's extraordinarily dangerous because it feels so good and feels so right and caring at times. Tim Keller brilliantly says, what the heart wants, the mind finds justifiable until the hands find doable. It starts with the heart. False beliefs, they infect through the heart, but then they don't stop there ever. False beliefs then inform destructive behavior. False beliefs, they first destroy us, they dehumanize others, and then eventually defame Jesus. And that's why Jesus is so torn up here, because it feels so right to them. 
Listen to the wisdom of the wise sage from the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. It feels so right, Scripture says. And usually that's where Satan hits us the best. I mean, how many times did we feel so justified, so right in what we were doing, and maybe a couple minutes later, or maybe a couple years, or a couple decades later, we look back at the pain and the heartache we caused other people. It only takes a minute to just peruse the sexual revolution driven by the worship of freedom to see the pain of child abuse, sex trafficking at an all-time high, and sex slavery at an all-time high driven by the pornographic industry. Broken marriages and consistent residue from broken relationships. You see, Jesus Christ hates death. He hates death. And false beliefs that infect us through our heart begin to breed destructive behaviors that bring death to ourselves and those around us. And Jesus is in opposition to that. And when pastors or leaders or Christians or churches begin to promote a teaching similar to the Nicolaitans, Jesus will not sit idly by for long. Because number three, false beliefs, imagine a false vision of the world. False beliefs imagines a false vision of the world. They head us in a certain direction. We see an ideal universe that's actually in competition with Jesus' kingdom that's breaking into this broken world. And there will only be one kingdom that stands in the end. And every other kingdom, as good as it may feel in the moment, will breed opposition, will breed oppression, and will breed exploitation. And Jesus will not stand by for that world to have a chance to become reality. Not forever. How many of you have seen the uh, new Spider-Man film, Far From Home? Yeah? A little bit of spoiler alert. I'm just going to give you a little bit, but not a lot. All right, just to give you a heads up. Um, you can rent it on Amazon. So it's out there. It's live. <clears throat> and so in this particular, um, this particular movie, Spider-Man comes up against a new villain. His name's Beck. Okay? He's, and what you find out is that he's this disgruntled, former Stark Industries employee who is like a holographic specialist. And the way he goes about destroying the world isn't in brute force. It's by creating an alternate reality. He uses these drones to create a different kind of world. And the only way you can defeat Beck is by dismantling the illusion. That feels so real. It feels unbelievably real. You have to dismantle the illusion if you have any chance of victory. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Being so culturally situated, feeling so justified in our beliefs, how do we dismantle these illusions in which we find ourselves? How do we surrender our false beliefs? Or in the words of Jesus, repent. Because listen, the same language that Jesus uses here of coming with the sword, jump to Revelation 19, and you see he comes in on a white horse and he slays his enemies and their carcasses are out in the open for the birds of the air to feast. This is not the super cozy Jesus. He means business because belief is where the war for the world is waged. So how do we do this? Okay, this is very serious business. How, 
How do we surrender these false beliefs? How do we repent? Because here's the difficulty with belief, folks. You can't control what you believe. Do you realize this? This was something I kind of was even shocked with myself, just diving a little bit deeper. So, Phyllis, if I came up to you and I said, I've got a million dollars, I'll pay you a million dollars to believe you have superpowers. No matter how much money I gave Phyllis, she can't just force herself to believe she has superpowers, right? If she took a polygraph and then I said, hey, you have superpowers? It's going to come across when she says, I do. Lie, okay? <laughs> There's just no way. You can't force yourself to believe anything. And Blaise Pascal, a brilliant Christian who is a mathematician and physicist, says this. You can't force or control belief, but what you can do is do intentional practices that cultivate true belief and surrender false belief. You can cultivate practices that actually instill true belief. And repentance, folks, when it comes to our beliefs, is nothing more than surrender. If you look in our text, there's this language of holding on to Jesus or holding on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What we have to do is learn to repent, which is letting it go and holding fast to Jesus exclusively. How do we do this? We're going to look at three crucial practices that are going to cultivate true belief and help us surrender false belief even when they feel core to who we are, okay? Here they are. First one. First thing we need to do is identify to whom we're listening. Identify to whom we're listening. Jesus does this, doesn't he? He says, look at the Nicolaitans. <laughs> he names them. He's not like politically correct in this point. He's like, there are some people out there. No, he's like, no, the Nicolaitans are messed up. And I hate what they're doing. Identify whom you're listening to. And the Nicolaitans then, as well as still today, thought they had like a special niche on what God's purpose was in the world, even though it was contra the biblical witness and contra the historical witness of the church. They didn't care about that. They felt like they had a special insight to God's will, and it was destroying the church. I want you this week, this is really important, and this is a very hard discipline to engage. This week... For you, just do an input audit. Write down each day to whom you're listening. When you're driving day in and day out, what music are you listening to? This was like, once again, a reawakening for me because I just love a good beat. And I'm just like, ding, ding, ding. and I'm just like not even paying attention to the lyrics in my car, traveling around. And then I'm like, oh, snap, what did they just say? Like, and suddenly that's like going into my subconscious and it's shaping me. And I wonder why I'm wrestling with these things because they're right in line with the particular desires that they're inflaming, right? What music are you listening to? What are the lyrics? What are they training you to do? What blogs are you reading? You know, we, we, we get about an hour together a week, maybe. You know, if you're not traveling or sick or life happens, right? But how many of us are spending more than an hour a night watching news? Engaging particular blogs, engaging periodicals, reading books, listening to music, listening to podcasts. And I'm going to be very clear about this, okay? The reason, a big reason the church is so polarized and broken today isn't because we can't figure out this. It's because we've been listening either to Fox News or MSNBC and we come to the text looking how it's going to support them rather than how this is the plumb line of both extremes. And when I come here, I often have to have conversations because I have to dismantle malformation of the various influences that have been speaking into your life that are contrary to the biblical witness. Wake up. You are constantly being formed. 
Identify who you're listening to, who's forming you, who shaped what you're feeling. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Satan did that in the garden, didn't he? He was so crafty with Adam and Eve. He first starts getting them to doubt the love of God, and then he sparks up their insecurities. God doesn't really love you. He's keeping something from you. Maybe it's because there's something better for you if you just go your own route. Maybe he's right. So through the heart, into the mind, out to the hands, and so comes destruction the world over, first to Adam and Eve, and now to every one of us still. Identify to whom you're listening. God has called us to be a discerning people of what we're engaging, not just consumers of it. The Apostle Paul, even in the book of Acts, when he comes to a particular community, he praises the Bereans. Why? Because they question him. <laughs> he starts preaching the gospel and they say, hey, hey, that sounds good, but where's it at in the text? And the Apostle Paul's like, good on you. Way to go, Bereans. He's not like, hey, you should just trust me because I had a special revelation. No. He's like, go back to the text. That's what we're meant to be. God's word is consistent throughout every age because our God is the same God today, yesterday, and forever. Do we believe that? Do an input audit. To whom are we listening? And then secondly, name the world they're imagining. Okay? Name the world they're imagining. Jesus does this with the Nicolaitans, doesn't he? He says, this is the Nicolaitans, and you know who they're a lot like? They're a lot like Balaam. Whoa, don't do that. Go back to your Bibles, see what God did to Balaam. Do you want to be a part of that? I don't think so. I'm going to be at war with them. Is that the world you want? Jesus is abundantly clear as to where they're headed. So ask yourself when you're listening to these various voices, where do they want the world to ultimately be? Who's included? Who's excluded? And why? What are their values? And what's their foundation for that? You know, it wasn't too long ago I had a conversation with a young woman who was asking some questions and we had a coffee conversation about her faith journey and she said, you know, Gabe, I'm just in a period right now of deconstruction. And I said, that's actually really healthy. There are a lot of beliefs that you and I hold. I'm talking about every single person in this room that we do need to deconstruct because we've been so formed by our culture that we haven't actually allowed scripture to build the city around us. So deconstruct away. But here's the warning I told her. I said, listen, there's a day coming where you're going to have to rebuild. Because if it's just deconstruction, you're going to come to the end of your life and you're going to be surrounded by ruins. And also, here's a warning. You may build the city you feel perfectly comfortable in but it needs to be a city that God feels comfortable living. Because a world that feels really good for you, but is void of God, sounds a lot like hell to me. Beware. What are you building? And who's giving you the blueprint? How are you framing this? How are you rebuilding? And not just being a part of the destructive effort. Because listen, Jesus is abundantly clear on his vision for the world and where it's going. Look at Revelation chapter 7. What do we see? People from every tribe and tongue. We see extraordinarily, extraordinary diversity. We see people in white robes. Why? Because they lived of self-sacrifice and the world was opposed to them and even took their lives. You see chastity. We don't often talk about that, but there's unbelievable holiness going on with God's people. So diversity, chastity, and then unity in the exclusive worship of the crucified and risen lamb. 
Diversity, chastity, unity. Any of those begin to dismantle. We have to ask who indeed is building the world in which you're living. Beware. So after you've done this input audit, here's another audit you can do. Do a behavior audit. Do a behavior. After you've been like listening to whoever you feel like you've been listening to for a while, what's starting to come out of you or leak out of you? Go to, if you go to Galatians chapter 5, right? I know, right? It's about to get real, Charlie. Galatians chapter 5, when you're listening, when you've been steeped into particular voices, what's coming out of you? Is it the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Still there. Or is it the works of the flesh? So you want to know what the opposite is? Go to the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Is that in there? Yeah, that's there. Rivalries. Dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these I warn you about. There's not a lot of question there. What's coming out of you when you're listening to these voices? Who are you becoming? And there's one more thing, a third component to really help us cultivate pursuing true beliefs and surrendering false beliefs, and it's this, commit to church. Because listen, the church in Pergamon has got a lot of issues. They were silent when they needed to speak up against false teaching. They were self-serving rather than sacrificial. They were holding on to someone else other than Jesus exclusively. But the only reason amidst all their brokenness that we have any hope for the church of Pergamum is because they continued to gather together. Such that when Jesus had a word for the church of Pergamum, they were there to hear it. They were able to hear it. If they didn't come to church that day, they're stuck, in, they're stuck in their destruction, ongoing. Who's going to speak against them? For their good, for their life, for their peace, for their wholeness. See, the church of Pergamum understood that to hold on to Jesus meant holding on to his church. To use Paul's metaphor, you can't just have the head without the body. You need a full embrace. And to do that, we need to ask and kind of do a commitment audit. Some of you are like, that's a lot of audits. It's not even tax season. It's like, whoa. So we did input audit, behavior audit, now a commitment audit. And I want to be very clear, okay? Asking for trust in the midst of the church is hard because the church has had a mixed record, hasn't it? And sometimes it's done some outright awful things. And it's always because of false doctrine, seduced by power, sex, or money, cultivating a false vision of the world and where it's going that does not align with Jesus' kingdom. And in those moments, what is meant to be an agent of reconciliation and joy becomes an avenue of death. And so here at Christ Community, we take this the stewardship of God's word very seriously. And I just want to give you two practices that we seek to engage in appropriate accountability to make sure that this is our plumb line rather than our, our own little hobby horses, okay? So every Monday, the teaching pastors across the five campuses and the worship pastors gra- gather together and we walk through the text one week out and two weeks out. 
And someone might say, hey, I think this is what this means. Is this crazy? And someone's like, yeah, that's crazy. Don't ever tell anybody that, right? Like, there's some good checks and balances. It's not me on my own little hobby horse because I felt it right. Because many times we feel good, but we're completely in error. Amen? And so we need those voices of accountability. Secondly, something I do and that other campus pastors do as well is after I'm done writing a script, yes, I write a full-on script. I don't use it on Sunday, but I write myself clear. I share it with folks of diverse generation, ethnicity, and gender to reveal if there are any possible blind spots. Look, the, the word of God has inherent meaning, but often in our cultural situatedness, we can have blind spots and we need the diversity of God's community to understand the robust nature of God's word that is inherent within the text from an original author to an original audience guided by the spirit for the good of all people throughout history. What would it look like for you? What would it reveal when you do a commitment audit? Do you need to maybe join and become an intentional member of the church? November 17th, we have a membership class where we talk about what healthy relationship with a community centered on Jesus looks like and how we can invite one another into that because we don't want to presume, but we want to be invited as we seek to pursue Jesus together. Maybe for some of you it means serving. Brandy talked about some of those options and ways in which we have a lot of opportunities to grow in our Christ-likeness in our servanthood to the church gathered. Maybe it's giving. Maybe you've been holding tight-fisted with greed and you haven't been obedient to God's call to give to the church and to have a broader posture of generosity. Maybe it's joining in a community group and those start up in January. Are you beginning to organize your schedule so that other people can speak into your life and speak against those false beliefs that we so hold dear and are so self-deluded? Are we actually engaging scripture together? What is that for you? What does that commitment audit reveal in your life? Because I want to be very clear when we seek to commit to the truth, it's going to cost us everything. Everything. I mean, look in our text. <laughs> the false belief is a lot easier. Truth is hard. Who's the one person who's faithful? The dead guy. Okay? Antipas, my faithful witness, who's dead. What about the Nicolaitans? They don't have to compromise anything. They get to do what they want at the feast, they get to sleep with who they want, and they can go about life just feeling fine about themselves because inside they know Jesus is Lord even though he hasn't touched anything in their lives. They're sitting pretty for now. And that's what Jesus is saying, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. And it won't always be pretty and it won't always be the exact way it looks today. I'm coming and I'm going to war with them with the sword of my mouth. Once again, you want a picture of that, go to Revelation 19. We can choose comfort today. We can choose to hold tight to our false beliefs and be at war with Jesus, or we can surrender our false beliefs and so be conquerors. Isn't that what Jesus says? Those who have the ears to hear, you can conquer, right? There's something about this battle. You can be invited to victory. And while some may be feasting at the table today, Jesus invites us to know hidden manna. It's hidden. It feels like barely enough for the day. <laughs> it's hidden, but one day it'll be revealed. Some are getting invitations to great prestige because they're embracing the cultural values, carte blanche, all of it. 
where Jesus says, I'm going to give you this clear stone that's going to be an invitation to table with me. And then you're going to get a, good, get a new name. When so many people are about making a name for themselves, you'll get a new name and it's hidden because it's hidden in Christ. And when he comes, the world will know in the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord even though the world wants to disown him. See, the world, it's headed for an upheaval. That's the biblical narrative on portray here, portrayal here. But we want to be a church for the end of the world. We want to be a church that holds fast to Jesus in the ordinary beliefs. And praise God, through him we can have the victory in some of the greatest battles by faith. Will you surrender your beliefs? Identify to whom you're listening. Name the world they're envisioning. And commit to church a place that's meant to be a bastion of truth, a place of free speech as we wrestle to follow Jesus together. Let's pray. God, there's so many influences, so many people who are vying for us, working through our hearts and the things that we love the most. And so we have the deepest entrenched false beliefs. And I pray that the Spirit of God, that you would work, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us into truth for you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by you. And so we hold fast to that. Give us an unbelieving faith, <laughs> an unbelievable faith. Maybe that's a better way to put it. May we unbelieve false beliefs. And may we believe what is only true. Even if it costs us everything. God, we can't do that in our own strength. We want to work out our salvation, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, in fear and trembling, knowing that the stakes are high. But we can only do it when you work in and through us. So God, help us. May we have the humility to receive, the courage to let go, and the power to continue on. For your glory, God, and our good and our joy today and forever. Amen.